We don't require geniuses, just very smart people of good character. And character is a combination of the moral values that are distinctive to each individual. That is, in fact, a part of PNG's culture and always has been going back to the founding partners. And the character of PNG employees is what supports the company principle of always trying to do the right thing. I have always believed that integrity can also be a competitive advantage. Great companies are all about the people. Good people become great leaders, mentors for work and life. Welcome to Learnings from Leaders, the PNG Alumni Podcast. I'm Roman Segel, recovering marketer. And I'm Andrew Tarvin, humor engineer. Roman and I both got our start at PNG, the Procter & Gamble company, where we had the opportunity to work with some amazing people. And as you may know, many leaders across industries got their start at PNG. In this series, through conversations with fellow PNG alums, we hope to go deeper with the leaders you already know but want to know more about. It's kind of like being a fly on the wall for my mentoring coffees. On today's show, we're talking to PNG alumni leader Ed Arts, former CEO and chairman of the board at Procter and Gamble. Yeah, Drew. What I loved about this conversation was it was a leader that preceded us at PNG, and we learned a lot about kind of what he was doing at the company before we even knew there was a company. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. There's a lot of talking about the thinking behind some of the thinking, which I thought was cool. Here's a quick bio. Ed Art served as Procter and Gamble's chairman and chief executive from 1990 to 1995, during which sales grew to 33 billion dollars, and the company grew well above historic averages. Ed joined P&G in 1953, leading growth on brands like Comet, Zest, Charmin, Bounty, and Folgers. Ed also served on the boards of American Express, Delta Airlines, GTE, and Teradyne. He was active in foreign affairs and an influential advocate of world trade, particularly through his strong support of the North American Free Trade Agreement and the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade. Ed even served as a member of President Clinton's Advisory Committee on Trade Policy and Negotiations. He now lives in Florida and is known to spend some time in Wyoming as well. All right, Drew. So something I thought was so cool is the story of how out of college, he took three different jobs to test them out. I mean, if you had done that, what would your other two jobs have been right out of school? It's it's a great question because, yeah, and Ed was like always kind of data driven and testing things and stuff, even at that early age. So he took jobs as a sports writer, copywriter and TV producer and ultimately went the advertising route. If it was three for me, you know, the way that I went was project manager with kind of a technical background. Number two, I guess, could have been computer programmer, like sitting behind the desk and actually like writing a ton of code for software which I think I would have eventually hated because I do at least need some social interaction, minor, but at least some social interaction. And then the third one maybe been would have been comedian. I started doing improv in college and a bunch of my friends moved to Chicago to go through IO and Second City. And so part of me also almost wanted to do that, but I never wanted to be like the, the starving artist type person. I was like, no, let me get a real job and then let's bring humor into that as opposed to be a comedian and only sleep on couches. Well, I mean, what I do love about your options is that you are kind of doing a combination of all of those, even like the programmer stuff. I mean, your spreadsheet game is pretty strong, my friend. <laughs> it is. Well, and, and actually, the kind of addition of the pandemic and virtual programming, it brings back my computer science degree now of actually being able to deliver good virtual events. But I, I mean, what about you? What would your three have been? Oh, man, I 
back then I didn't know what I wanted to do. And frankly, I'm still kind of figuring it out. I mean, this podcast, honestly, it's not just me trying some things out like another option. It's partially me using these conversations to seek the answers and the stories from our guests. So I, I don't know. I still don't know. Well, and I think it's it's a cool thing that yeah, we do get, to, do get to learn. What I think is interesting is almost all of the guests, and Ed was the same, is they very rarely say, oh, I knew at 10 years old that this is what I wanted to be. It's more of a discovery of their career. But also from that discovery, a big part of what Ed talked about is also that you do and can learn from people that came before you. We're doing it in the sense of this podcast, and Ed did it in other ways as well. Yeah, I, I liked his story about his inspiration for, at the time, what was called PNG College was built as a way of passing down stories and lessons. Yeah, or learnings, perhaps? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I guess so. And you know, that, that eventually led to where you and I met. Yeah, it was a, uh, I think, a band one college for for IDS at the time or IT, and you were that that sage wise person who was helping to lead some training, and I was uh, the young, I don't know, I'm going to say rock star. I don't know if I was a rock star or not. <laughs> a humble, very humble, humble uh, young, very, executive. very humble experience. But no, it was it is it was a great opportunity to be able to learn from people. And that's, you know, part of the PNG experience is is insights and leadership development, I think. And learnings. And learnings. Well, we hope that you enjoy the learnings from this uh, podcast episode. It's it's a great conversation with someone who truly understands and, and lives and breathes the the PNG kind of spirit mentality. We we hope you'll enjoy our conversation with Ed Arts. Ed, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for joining us. Well, thank you, Drew. I'm a pleasure to be here and to be talking to all of wonderful PNG alum. Yeah, well, I'm I'm very excited to chat with you about some of your your stories and, and insights. And so many of our listeners may already know your story. You grew up in Los Angeles, went to the University of Oregon, started at PNG in 1953. And over your 41-year career, you had roles in brand management with some of P&G's most iconic brands, including Comet, Zest, Charmin, Bounty, and more. You led P&G's international business during a time of growth, and ultimately, you became CEO in 1990, where earnings doubled over your five-year tenure. You've also been on the boards of a number of companies, including P&G, Delta, American Express, and served on President Clinton's Advisory Committee on Trade Policy. You're also in the National Sales and National Advertising Hall of Fame. So my first question for you with that incredible kind of track record and career is, is that the career you imagined when growing up in LA? What did 10-year-old Ed want to grow up to be? Well, when I was 10 years old, it was 1940, and we all imagined that war was imminent. So all the kids in our neighborhood were talking about which service we would expect to join. I remember wanting to be a Navy pilot. But the war ended when I was only 15, and that didn't happen. So as to my career hopes, I always wanted to be a sports writer. And I pursued that interest until a year before I joined P&G. In fact, I had been sports editor of my high school newspaper. I majored in journalism at, at Oregon. And I worked for a Los Angeles Daily newspaper for a year after I graduated college. So I gave it a good shot. Yeah, and I think that's one of the things that impresses me. So even at a young age, after you graduated and you went back to LA, in addition to the career at the newspaper, you also had two other jobs. So I'm curious, you had a job in journalism, one in television production and one in advertising. 
why take three jobs? What was the mentality for doing that right out of school? Well, I had a wife and child to support, and I couldn't afford to take the time to try all three career options sequentially. I had always been an ardent multitasker, so I figured I could handle the workload. I was lucky that actually the newspaper job was in the morning, starting at about 5 a.m. The ad agency let me work as a copywriter in the afternoon, and the TV shows were on the weekend. But within a year, I concluded that, uh, well, my talents were best suited for advertising, and I decided to look for into jobs in account management on the East Coast, where the major agencies were all headquartered. Yeah, so I, I love that. So testing out, you're like, okay, if I, I there's three possible careers I like, let me test out each one of them. And so advertising was the one you kind of chose. And so how did P&G come into the picture if you were thinking about the big kind of East Coast agencies? Yeah, that was another stroke of good luck, actually, just as I was starting to make my agency job search. P&G ran a full-page ad. It was a recruiting ad in the LA Times describing career opportunities in brand management. I actually didn't see the ad, but my uncle Charlie, a retired auto engineer from Detroit, he knew about my career plan. He also knew about P&G being in the Midwest. So he brought the ad to our apartment and said, this sounds like what you're looking for. So I answered the ad. I took a test and they invited me to Cincinnati for interviews. And it was the most intense interview experience I had ever been through. What impressed me really the most was that every senior manager in the advertising department took the time out of his busy day to spend about 15 minutes talking to me. And I remember how intelligent the people were and how they took the hiring process so seriously. And I think it's one of the reasons that I put so much effort into recruiting when I became CEO of the company. And that day ended with my receiving a job offer which I accepted a few days later after my wife agreed to move into Cincinnati. And at that point, we had a two-year-old daughter and a second one on the way. So because of my young family and my marketing experience in Los Angeles, the company let me start out in sales training so we wouldn't have to move twice. First to Cincinnati, of course, and back into a sales district for six months traditional sales training. So the company actually hired me as an assistant brand manager on sales training. And that example of the company's concern about the treatment of employees' families made a lasting impression on me. Yeah, it is. It's something to to speak to right away at the beginning of your career, that family was something that was important. I'm I'm sure making a a positive impression in that way. And, And so you do sales training, and, and I know John Pepper is a fan of this story of a fabled drive from L.A. to Cincinnati, something that he's, he's talked with us about. So I'm curious, what was so special about that, that trip from L.A. to Cincy? Well, the company had decided that I should return from sales training during the period of national sales vacations and factory shutdowns. That's t- that took place during the last two weeks of July. So my wife and I decided to take a week and drive from L.A. to Cincinnati. There were four of us, including our two daughters, ages one and two and a half. Now, oh, my last assignment in the field was to sell a national coupon mailing on several P&G brands with the mailing scheduled for, for drop during the last week in June. And mailing coupons during the peak of sales vacations and factory shutdowns was 
actually it was highly unusual for P&G and we'd been having some some serious problems in LA because the coupon brands were running out of stock and couldn't be resupplied. Coupons were being misredeemed. In fact, they were misredeemed mostly on Tide, which had not been coupon. So the trade was furious with us. And before I left, my district manager told me about all the problems the mailing caused. So I started checking stores on the way back because I was curious as to whether this was the situation everywhere else. And it turned out it was. So I just kept on checking stores to be able to get as complete a picture as possible. Wait, so you you stopped at stores along this route. So you're moving the family and also taking stops. Was that part of your job responsibility? Was it something that your boss asked you to do? Why were you doing this already so early into your career? No, it was not part of my job. In fact, store checks were not part. And nobody asked me to do those checks. It was just because I felt I had a vested interest in the outcome of that of that national promotion because I put so much effort and time into selling it to my customers. Okay. So you're stopping along stores and, and checking them. So then what happened once you actually got to Cincinnati? Well, when we got back to Cincinnati, I told my boss about my store checks findings. And apparently the news traveled fast up the ladder. And the next thing I knew, I was called up to Howard Morgan's office along with one of the company's vice presidents. And I remember that Mr. Morgan's welcomed me back from sales training and and told me that he knew that I had checked a lot of stores on my trip. And he asked me, what did you find out? I told him I found out that the couponing was well supported by the trade. We had lots of features and displays. Redemption was heavy. But unfortunately, there was widespread out of stock on the coupon brands due to the the, uh, bad timing. I reminded him that our salespeople were on vacation. Our factories were shut down for annual maintenance, and as a result, we were unable to meet the trade's request for replenishment of store stocks. When I told him that misredemption happened to be a problem, too, I remember telling him, I'm sorry, Mr. Morgan, but I don't think we should have mailed those coupons when we did because they arrived when we were unable to replenish stock for our brands, either to warehouses or directly to the larger chain stores. I don't recall Mr. Morgan's response, actually, but I'm sure we didn't repeat that mistake again. And in fact, that experience was an example to me, a lasting example to me, really, of P&G's determination to learn from its mistakes and to try to understand how to avoid repeating them. Yeah. And I think what a great experience to also so early in your career be able to to share that perspective and for it to be received well, as opposed to being the, the bearer of bad news, that type of thing. They they took it and they learned from it. And and that seems to be something that's a bit of a hallmark of your career, this this sense of you being a troubleshooter, you know, the person that the company would turn to when a problem needed to be fixed or someone who's been around for some pivotal moments at PNG. So I'd love to talk about some of the lessons you've learned from some of those experiences. The first is in your work at Paper, because you were around at right at some of the important times for Charmin, Bounty, and more. And and then previously, you've said that you know the genius that produced Pampers, Bounties, Pringles, and Swiffer was no accident. And so I'm curious, what what wasn't the accident piece of it? What led to innovation? What was the genius that made these types of innovations work? Well, that's a wonderful question that I'm happy to share with our every company has its defining strengths. And of course, P&G has more than one. But in the field of product research, perhaps the company's most productive strength over the decades has been the field of process development. Process development. 
And that's the art of putting things together in novel ways that result in superior consumer products. I put the emphasis there on novel ways. Think of developing the process to make ivory soap float or to make Crisco shelf stable or the genius that produced Pampers, Bounty, Pringles, and Swiffer. They were no accident. The apparent genius was inextricably, inextricably linked by teams of engineers, R&D scientists, and manufacturing process specialists who made difficult things work. We were really good at that. We always have been. It's been one of our singular strengths as a company. Yeah, and this this component of creating a process for innovation, so that you know people can follow, not knowing necessarily what the innovation is going to be, but there's a process behind it, the R and D process. I think is a really powerful thing to to take away, putting that in place. And so that's some of these big brands. The other the other thing that I wanted to talk a little bit about was Pantene, because I know Pantene originally came as part of the Richardson Vicks acquisition and at the beginning, wasn't even really a primary focus from that acquisition. But you've also said that there are kind of two miracles, quote unquote, miracles that happened to help expand that brand internationally, where it ultimately became the number one shampoo brand in the world. So I'm curious, what were those two moments? I believe there were more coincidences than miracles, but I'm not sure now as I look back on it. Here it goes. Antine had been a stepchild of Richardson Vicks. When we acquired that company in 1984, Pantene was only a $25 million hair restorer. It was a product that was applied in barbershops and beauty salons. And at the same time, Richardson Vicks also marketed a brand under the Pantene name, which was a men's hair tonic, which had also built a small loyal following in France, but no place else. I think it was 1986 when P&G's U.S. organization took the lead in trying to turn Pantene into a successful shampoo brand using the company's two-in-one technology, which had already been used in PERT Plus. But the U.S. effort was pretty much a bust, and they chose to overlook the brand's professional background. Meanwhile, we had formed a joint venture with a Spanish diaper company in Barcelona, Spain, and I was invited to attend a celebration of the event with the family owners at the Barcelona Opera House. I was a senior member of the P&G delegation, so I was seated directly across from the founder, who was also the principal owner. And it was 1989, four years, four years after we purchased Richardson Vicks and obtained Pantene. And that's where the first miracle took place. As we were sitting there trying to talk to each other through an interpreter, the owner was gesturing wildly, and he was messing up, messing up his his bushy head of hair and virtually shouting at me in Catalan. So I asked the interpreter what he was saying, and and he said, he's saying, look at my hair. I've been using this Pantene's treatment every day for 35 years, and look how bushy it is. I didn't know what to think, but it certainly made me curious. But then shortly after that, Miracle 2 hit me. I was in Buenos Aires on company business and needed a haircut. So I went to the barbershop in our hotel, and while I'm in the chair, I noticed the guy sitting next to me was getting something rubbed into his head by the barber. I asked him what he was doing, and he said, Pantene, it makes hair grow. And so, and I really said this to myself, someone is sending me a message. This can't be coincidence. I had better do something about this. So I went back to Cincinnati and looked up the history of Pantene and Hoffman LaRoche. 
and it turned out that they had some evidence that Pantene was effective at repairing damaged hair. Now, that was short of making hair grow, but we could still support the claim, hair so healthy it shines. So I started talking to our managers, and I said, who would be interested in marketing a whole new approach on Pantene using our two-in-one technology? Two countries volunteered, France and Taiwan. Taiwan, by the way, put it all together using the search and reapply technique that had become an important part of our operating culture in the 1970s. The rest is history. Pantene was a major success, growing to $4 billion in sales and became the number one shampoo brand globally. Yeah, and, and what an impressive story. And there's there's a lot in that, I think, from a, a leadership perspective that I'm curious about because, first of all, you have these two experiences that, you know, yeah, you could say are coincidences, but they were kind of data points for you to consider. So so what role does intuition or let's say even observation play in the decisions as a leader? Well, intuition, of course, is the ability to understand something without conscious reasoning. And it can be important in leadership decisions. I think of it in business as the ability to sense opportunity or to smell trouble. I used to do a bit of both. I believe it can be very useful if you have a depth of experience in your memory bank, which produces intuitive thinking. It also depends on how close you stay to the important details of your business so that you recognize things you have experienced before. Yeah, it's a great thing to to kind of build off of. And so, but even within that, so you have the intu- intuition, you have the thought about it, and then you decided to to do a test. So why did you ask who would be interested? Why did you open it up to, to people to kind of raise their hand or volunteer? Why not just assign a region to do it or to do a long analysis to say which region is gonna, this going to work the best in? Why, why offer it up as something that people could volunteer to do? Well, you're right. I could have assigned the Pantene Project without asking for volunteers. But that's not the, always the best way to get results. Now, here we had a brand that had not done well in the U.S., and we had very limited experience with successful shampoo marketing in our international division. Therefore, I was looking for people with a passion that would be necessary to come up with the, with the analysis and ideas to make Pantene into a successful brand. It turned out that this was one of those situations where it was the right thing to do. Yeah. And, and one of those things you, you said, part of the, the value of it launching well was using search and reapply, something that had come in the 1970s as a part of the the core way of, of P&G working. So what exactly is search and reapply and, and how does that benefit an organization like P&G? Yes, well, this is one of the most important globalization techniques that we embraced in the company, beginning with our European operations all the way back in the 1970s. Search and reapply is literally, literally the opposite of and not invented here. And I think everyone is familiar with that syndrome. Mm-hmm. We discovered that people were much more willing to share their successful ideas with other parts of the company than they were to accept them when the situation was reversed. And we formalized Search and Reapply as an element of performance that we strongly encouraged. After all, PNG is a company of very creative people doing creative things. And therefore, it benefits, it, it benefits virtually every profit center to reach out for the things that are working elsewhere in the company and apply them to their particular situation. Here, in the case of Pantene, search and reapply helped us get 
the un incredibly great advertising that eventually made this brand such a success. But the key was a strategic find, a desire, a determination to to take advantage of the history of Pantene and Hoffman LaRoche as a direct application hair restorer. So the key strategic decision was to make Pantene a treatment rather than just a beauty shampoo, marketing both the shampoo and a separate conditioner as a two product combination. That made the difference. That gave Pantene a positioning that set it apart from every other brand on the market. Yeah, which is a great way to build, right? The, I love that that concept of search and reapply. And even I'm impressed just with the the culture of PNG because I remember hearing that from my manager when I started in 2006. So even something that culturally around 1970s is part of the the growth of business was still applied even on the the IT side many years later. And and one of the things that you mentioned in there was around globalization. And that brings me to another thing that I wanted to ask about because a part of a, your career has been running the international business, particularly the Europeanization of, of P&G, which included some pretty seismic changes in strategy and reorganization, things like having local talent running local regions and the idea of category management as opposed to just brand management and people being responsible for regions rather than just single countries. And so the first question that I have around this is that I'm, I'm sure that any type of these big changes have a lot of, just a lot of challenges in general. So how do you bring together diverse cultures, backgrounds, and languages when in an international organization? Well, that's a honey of a question too. <laughs> Actually, the first principle that usually underscores all the actions you take is interdependence. If one, if one group has the ham and the other group has the eggs, there's a need to work together to make ham and eggs. That's, that's oversimplifying, but that's true. And P&G, we require multinational representation on all our global planning teams. We always did business in one language, English. Sources of product and supply were another way to achieve the benefits of interdependence. It was a very important principle in guiding our global business strategy. And of course, our history was such that in most of our overseas headquarters, like in Geneva and in Brussels, we had multinational employee groups who had been working together for years. So PNG started very early with a mixture of people, people from all nations and cultures working together in headquarter locations, which made it easier later on to do that across country lines. Yeah, very nice. And the the part of the that work has been around kind of restructuring. And that's something that you've done a couple of times in your career. You did it when changing the role of the copy section, which was back in the day, giving more responsibilities to brands themselves. And then there was also company-wide restructuring when you were a CEO. And so I'm curious, as a leader of an organization, what goes into a decision like restructuring? How do you even know it's needed? And then once you know it's needed, how do you decide how to structure it? Well, every organization structure at some point becomes obsolete, oversized, or too cumbersome for fast, efficient company action. It's never very popular when you do it, but it's a necessary requirement of protecting the future of your, your enterprise and the businesses within it. Neil McElroy defined the need back in the 1950s when he said that at P&G, organization structure exists as a framework for the, for the development of our people. And he was explaining why the company 
and restructured to create separate operating divisions with their own functional staff groups. Nevertheless, P&G, like all businesses, required restructuring for other reasons too, including the need for growth, the need for diversification, the need for greater focus on upstream priorities, the need for additional or fewer departments. So restructuring has to begin with a very precise definition of the problems you're trying to fix or the improvements you need to make. I think it's a vital part of the process of achieving longevity for any business enterprise. Yeah, and, and that as part of that is kind of a reinvention. And that's something you've actually attributed part of PNG's success too, is its ability to reinvent itself. Even going so far as to say, you know, at PNG you don't just plan for obsolescence, you work to make it happen. So why is reinvention so important and how do you get an organization to do it? Well, PNG, like most companies, has had to reinvent itself in order to avoid what I call terminal obsolescence. You know, we had two major businesses at the beginning, candles, which succumbed to electric lights, and fat soap, which was obsolesced by synthetic detergents. In the early days, we transitioned from inedible to edible fats with the invention of Crisco, and then became one of the initiators of synthetics, but at the expense of our own major laundry soaps, dozen oxidol. Now, later we diversified into beauty, healthcare, paper, disposable diapers, and of course, the globalization of what had been primarily a U.S. business. Reinvention has been the driving force behind P&G's ability to thrive for 183 years, and that need will undoubtedly continue as products and categories inevitably obsolesce by new technology. Mm-hmm. And there is one thing that has stayed the same in all of that reinvention, and that is PNG's focus on the people, right? Because when you, when you talk to PNGers, it's like, okay, why does PNG succeed? They say the people. When people, I remember being early on in my career and asking people why they continue to stick around and stay at PNG, and they said the people. When I've left, or even when I've talked with people, I've left. They're like, when asked the question, "What do you miss most?" They always say the people. And it's, it's one of the reasons the alumni network exists. And I remember hearing at my time that people would say, you can take away P&G's factories, the products, and even their material assets. But if the people were still around, P&G would still exist in a way. And, I, and I've heard you actually attribute that back to Richard Dupree, P&G's first non-Procter or Gamble CEO, who was in charge during the Great Depression. So what is it about the people or the, the organization or in a sense, the, the soul at P&G? What is it about them and, and how do you build something like that? Well, I remember a statement that Howard Morgan's made when he was interviewed many years ago for his oral history. And he was asked what we look for in people we hire and Howard said it very well. He said, we don't require geniuses, just very smart people of good character. And that is the best answer I could give today. P&G people are very smart people of good character. Occasionally, we do hire some geniuses like Vic Mills. Vic Mills was a brilliant inventor who Mr. Dupree hired all the way back in 1930. And character, of course, as we define it at P&G, is a combination of the moral values that are distinctive to each individual. When we interview people, we like to know why they have done the things they have done in their life to date. What have they done to help make their school, their community, the world a better place? 
because that is in fact a part of PNG's culture and always has been going back to the founding partners. And the character of PNG employees is what supports the company principle of always trying to do the right thing. And I have always believed that integrity can also be a competitive advantage for the company because people that we deal with outside the company, they know that we're not going to be compromised, be compromising our principles for expedient gain. And so our salespeople, salespeople don't get constantly bothered for favors that they know we won't provide, nor will we succumb to requests for bribery in countries where we need a permit or a license in order to invest and operate freely. Another character trait of PNG people is that they care about the development of the people working for them. It's an important part of our culture. Being a good trainer or mentor at PNG is a valued asset, and it's almost always stressed in performance reviews. That's perhaps PNG's number one strength is people. Yeah, and I like that articulation, right? The smart people of good character. And it's something that I haven't thought about before in the past of that a strong culture is is a competitive advantage. It saves kind of salespeople's time that they don't have to say, hey, I'm not going to do these favors or bribery, that kind of stuff, because people then know the the culture. And so it actually helps them. And it seems to be, yeah, it is a, a strong competitive advantage. And so part of that is not just having the culture, but also having those smart people of good character, which you have to do from a recruiting perspective. And you mentioned recruiting a little bit earlier. And you've also have said in the past that you borrowed a a page from college coaching professions, right? Where a lot of times the best teams come from the best recruiters year in and year out. And a lot of that begins with the personal involvement of the coaches. So how did you apply that mentality to recruiting at P&G? And how do you attract and retain top talent? Well, that's another good question, and I want to, I'm happy to answer that. I was drawing the parallel that recruiting has to be proactive, and management should be involved in it. I had always worried about our ability to sustain our management excellence in all parts of the company with our policy of promotion from within. It can be done, and it has been done, if our recruiting succeeds in attracting the top people from the universities where we recruit, but it won't succeed if we ever were to lapse into a recruiting policy that mainly treats recruiting as a screening process. As a result, during the 80s and 90s, we organized recruiting teams by school. These teams were headed by P&G managers, plus their supporting employees. And I believe the results justified the commitment, but I'm not, able, but I'm not sure that the company is actually doing that today. Yeah, I know that I remember at least at my time, there was a value of that because I went to the Ohio State University and there were teams that would go up from Cincinnati to also recruit at Ohio State. That was back in 2006, 2007. But it does seem to be a, a big part of that. Like you said, if it's a promote from within company, you have to start with good people at the very beginning of those stages. But if you do start with smart people with good character, it means that they're going to be oftentimes type A, they're going to be very motivated they're potentially going to have lots of opportunities kind of thrown their way from other organizations. So how do you keep that type of motivated person engaged? How do you find ways to challenge them, but also not overwhelm them? Well, each case is different, of course. But as a rule, rule, this is the way the company handled the development of exceptional people. First, you stretch them, give them the toughest problems to analyze and solve. Keep stressing their need for personal improvement and help them improve. And finally, 
promote them before they feel they're ready for increased responsibility. I recall Howard Morgan saying that he always felt that he was not ready for increased responsibility each time the company promoted him. Most of the time, I felt that way too, and I'm sure a lot of people in the company have had that experience. Yeah, I think even sometimes, even to the point of starting at the organization, you're given a lot of responsibility right away. But what I love about that is, is what you're saying is not only stretch them, help them stress their need for personal improvement, but then actually help them do that improvement, which I think is sometimes missing in some other organizations, the actual helping piece of it. But within that, if you're going to have increased responsibility, if you're going to have kind of these stretch goals, in many ways that people are probably going to fail, right? Even if you have smart people. So I'm curious first, if you can think of a time that where something hasn't quite worked out as well as you thought it would, and how you've been able to use that as a, okay, this doesn't mean that I'm not good at what I do, but instead as a, a learning or jumping off point. Well, you can't succeed by being terribly risk averse. So you are going to have failures. And I certainly had mine. But to address the spirit of your question, I remember an experience I had when I was given a temporary assignment that took me away from my family for the better part of a year. Now, I had been vice president of the food division when the head of the coffee division became ill and could no longer work. So the company asked me to relocate and commute from Cincinnati to Kansas City until a new general manager could be appointed. So I traveled between Cincinnati and Kansas City every week and was home on the weekends. I had no trouble accepting the assignment because they had told me that I would soon become group vice president in charge of both the food and coffee division. So I could see the benefit of learning about the coffee business firsthand, but it was only supposed to last for several weeks. Instead, unfortunately, that assignment stretched out to nearly a year. And during that time, I would be home only on the weekend. And I discovered that continuous commuting had downsides for families, which would be avoided if possible. In that situation, you can become something of a stranger in your own home. And in fact, waiting for your arrival each weekend would be bills for the house and the car. And for example, the kids, especially teenagers, they're busy with their own weekend activities, usually not involving their parents. The whole rhythm of family life is affected when you separate families. So when I got to Europe, I discovered that some of our British managers were keeping their families in the UK while working on a permanent in permanent jobs at our headquarters in Brussels. Our policy had been, if you want to accept a permanent position outside your home country, you need to bring your family with you. It wasn't being followed, and I decided to enforce that policy based on my experience in coffee. Now, aside from being bad for families, the European situation set a dangerous precedent. Our European Technical Center in Brussels was staffed with people recruited from lots of from many different countries, and we needed to be consistent in the matter of separating families, especially at the top where examples were being set. And said another way. We wanted our European headquarters to be a community of families and not a place that separates employees from their families. Now, that's an experience that didn't turn out as well as I had hoped initially, but the lesson I learned was valuable for all the similar situations we faced later in my career. 
Yeah. And it, it goes back to that thing that you mentioned kind of at the very beginning of our conversation today around the value of family and the seriousness that PNG places in that, that idea that, yeah, if it's going to, if it's going to be a permanent assignment for a period of time that the family should come with you. And so I'm curious, as you think back on your, your career and the de- decisions that you made, what role has family played in making those decisions? Sure. My parents were both professional musicians. My mother was a pianist, and my father a violinist, also a band leader and music director. Both of them encouraged me to choose whatever career path I wanted, and they always made me feel loved. Now, career-wise, they both taught me the meaning of professionalism. In other words, to become a successful professional in any field required personal sacrifice, and above all, it required mastery of those fundamentals of your profession in particular. Practice, practice, practice was the family regimen in our home. Yeah, which is, is, I think, a valuable kind of lesson for for everyone. And that, back to the idea of you can't be risk adverse and be successful. And so part of that idea, learning from failure, whether it was this incident of commuting during the time of coffee or or others, has been a, a big part of your leadership journey. And now, a word from our sponsor. We're talking to alumni entrepreneur Paul Smith, managing director of Storymakers, whose aim is to make the world a better place one story at a time. He's also the author of four books, including The 10 Stories Great Leaders Tell. Paul, so I want to jump right in and understand what's so important about storytelling from a business perspective. Yeah, well, I, I guess it's that, uh, you know, human beings don't make the, the logical, rational decisions that we'd like to think we do, right? We, you know, we think we're these well-oiled, you know, business machines. But the truth is humans need something more than just facts and data to make decisions. Uh, and that's been proven many times in the cognitive science, you know, research. We, we have a, a subconscious emotional processing part of our brain that's really responsible for many of the decisions that we make. And storytelling just happens to be really well suited to communicate with that part of the brain and, and help that part really make the decision, which we then, of course, rationalize and justify later, you know, with the other part of our brain. So uh, if you want to if you want to really influence people, whether that's leadership or sales or marketing or something, it turns out you got to speak to both parts of the brain and storytelling is just uniquely qualified to help you do that. Absolutely. That, that makes a lot of sense. And, and so your most recent book is kind of exploring the, the types of stories that we need to be telling as leaders. So how did you come up with 10? Where does that come from? Yeah, well, the, the number 10, of course, is obviously a bit arbitrary. It's a, you know, it's a nice round number. I've, I've, I've trafficked and, and documented dozens and dozens of types of stories that leaders tell, 70 or 80 different types. And uh, gosh, probably published 250 or 300 different stories. But I finally just challenged myself to sit down and figure out, well, there's got to be some that are more important than others. And the way I came up with these 10 is, first of all, they're the type of stories that leaders most frequently ask me for help on, right? I've been doing this for eight or nine years now, and these are the type of stories leaders are, are often interested in. But they're also a, a set of stories that are useful in just about every job function. They're stories that I, I think encompass areas that, that I know after 30 some odd years in the business world that leaders need to influence in these areas. And I guess lastly, I wanted to pick stories that wouldn't need to change very often. You know, so as we get into the list, you know, one of them is, of course, a vision story. Well, 
you know, you're not going to change your vision every two or three weeks, right? It's the kind of thing that it should last a little longer than that. So I'm not picking stories that, you know, you're just going to use a few times and then throw away. These are stories that you should spend some time develop because you're going to need them for years, if not decades. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so you mentioned one type of story, vision. What are some of the other types of stories you need to learn? Yeah. So I'll just, I'll give you the whole list. All right. (laughs) Because it's pretty short. It's only 10 stories. So the first four kind of go together because they're about setting the direction for the organization. So that's where we came from, our founding story, why we can't stay there. So that's a case for change story, where we're going. And that's that vision story. And then how we're going to get there. And I call that a strategy story because a strategy is about getting from where you are now to where you want to be. So those four, you can imagine if a leader can tell those stories, they're more likely to get the organization to go where they want them to go. Mm -hmm. Now, the next four go together as well, but they're more about who we are as an organization. So that's what we believe. So that's a corporate value story. Who we serve. So that's a customer story, a story about your customer so that everybody in the company can have a visceral human understanding of who the ultimate boss is, right? Number seven is what we do for our customers. So that's a classical sales story or customer success story. And then number eight is how we're different from our competitors. So I call that a marketing story because marketing is typically about differentiating yourself from your competitors, right? So if you can tell those four stories, you can easily articulate, you know, who we are, who we serve, what we do for those people and how we're different, right? Those are all, that's all important. And then the, the last two, so if you're keeping track, two more, they're more personal to the leader. So number nine is why I lead the way I do. So that's a personal leadership philosophy story. Number 10 is why you should want to work here. So not you, Drew, but you know, yeah. you, whoever you're talking to, right? And so basically that's a recruiting story because every leader's job, you know, not just HR or recruiting department, their job is to bring in talented people and have them stay and follow your leadership. So I think if you were going to start out in storytelling, those are probably the first set of 10 stories that you'd want to focus on. Yeah. Wow. That is chock full of, of great insight. And so if people want to learn more, if they want to pick up the book or learn more about, you know, the services that you provide, et cetera, where do they go? Yeah. Thanks. Probably best case is uh, just my website, which is leadwithastory.com. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Paul, for joining us. And now back to our show. You've said in the past, every assignment I had provided lessons for reapplication, right? Similar to that, that share and reapply that we talked about. So how do you go about capturing and internalizing those lessons? Is it like an actual deliberate process? Do you like sit down at the end of each day and it's like, okay, what have I learned that I can reapply in the future? Or is it just that you reflect on it a little bit later? Is it something that you think about or just internalize? How, how does that process actually work? Well, in the early days, when P&G was relatively small, that function was formalized over lunch. Those were lunch meetings where the senior officers would talk about the business, including the lessons we were learning, what they meant. And during my tenure, we added the practice of recording oral histories from individual leaders so they could pass along their own experiences and the lessons they had learned. And most important, we created P&G College to formalize case histories of company learning for dissemination through the organization. Now those meetings, those lunch meetings in the early days were just not sustainable. It was a wonderful experience for me, and I'll talk about it more later if you want to continue on this subject, but we tried to reproduce that in, in our later deliberate organizational changes. Yeah, and so and I and I would love to, to talk a little bit more about that because PNG College is something 
that was new, something that you helped bring to be as a way to share P&G's cultural roots and the lessons learned from those previous failures, practical learnings from kind of executive experience. And so where did that idea of P&G College come from? Well, every P&G leader I have known has said it one way or another. Those who fail to learn from their mistakes are destined to repeat them. However, the bigger the company became, the harder it became for our future leaders to know what those mistakes were. It was harder for them to learn about our successes as well. Now, I was fortunate to have been elected to the company's administrative committee while we were still in the old wind building and still meeting daily in the executive dining room. It was a remarkable experience for me. I was amazed at how much you could learn from just hanging around all these men, listening to them talk about the company. Imagine having lunch each day with R.R. Dupree, Neil McElroy, and Howard Morgans. Ed Harness was there, too. And I learned a great deal from hearing those P&G leaders, hearing them talk about their, their knowledge of our history and their wisdom as the company's decision maker. And then the company became too large, too busy, too geographically diverse. And those daily gatherings, the tradition died. So that's why we created png.college in order to restore that tradition in a way that reached virtually all of our future managers, not just the senior executives. Also, instead of casual discussion, we created case histories based on real events, case histories that provided significant lessons for the future. And we recruited our active company executives to serve as the PNG College training instructors. It's true. You mentioned the book, The Leadership Secrets of of Attila the Hun, influenced the creation of P&G College. The book was given to me as something of a joke, but it contained a central theme that made an impression on me. That is, the culture of a tribe is passed on for generations by gathering around the campfire. And that's when the elders pass along their knowledge to the upcoming generation of future leaders. It's a time to tell stories, it's a time to share experience and transmit the wisdom behind the tribe's guiding principles. The campfire is essential to the group's longevity. Of course, it reminded me of how I had benefited from those campfire-style lunches in the old executive dining room at the P&G office in the Gwynn Building. In other words, the book was an allegorical description of parenting parenting, where the elders, your parents, prepare you for adulthood around the dinner table instead of around a campfire. Every company of any size needs to have this function in in its own way in order to preserve company lore as well as its prospects for longevity. P&G College is just one model, but it works for us. And what a, I mean, what an incredible experience early on in your career previously to be able to hear from all of those leaders in that style and to carry that tradition on for a, a group that is a little bit larger. And then, of course, you then become one of those leaders. And so I want to talk a little bit about your time as leadership. And so I'm, I'm curious, first of all, you took over after John Smale. And I'm curious, do you remember the moment you were told you were going to become CEO? I do remember the moment. It was a very personal moment, and but I feel I can recount it now that John has passed, passed away. I was returning to Cincinnati from a business trip. John Smale called me on the company plane, and he said, Ed, I need to see you tonight. I hear you're coming to Lunkin Airport. 
Can I meet you there at eight o'clock for a quick conversation? When I arrived, I went straight to the chief pilot's office, closed the door and sat down. And he said, I have decided to retire and the board has decided to have you replace me. I was stunned, but I stayed calm. And I had assumed because I had assumed that John would continue on as CEO until 65, but he apparently decided differently. That night at the airport, John said to me, you know, I'm doing this for your sake. So you could be the CEO of the company and have a run at it. I know if I stay on for a couple of years, which I could do, it might be too late for you. John said I was, oh, John and I were only three years apart in age. So when John stepped down, I was only 59. So he thought I could have a good run and make a difference. John was 62 at the time. And that actually had been par for the course for retiring P&G CEOs. For example, Howard Morgan's retired at 62, Dupree and Harness at 63, and I eventually retired at 65. Fortunately for me, I was healthy enough and had lots of energy to take the top job at 59. But John had made quite a concession for which I remain very grateful. Yeah, it's, a, it's an incredible testament to that idea of leadership and, and kind of building an organization where you leave it in good hands even after you left and making to making sure to kind of prepare it for that it's not just successful while you're there, but after you go. And it, it seems like, you know, certainly that's something that John helped to do by leaving. And so during your time at PNG and even even since then, you've had a passion for sharing stories and insights with people. And not just specifically at PNG, but outside of it as well within the community. And that includes a speech that you gave in 1993 called Stop the Hate, Addressing Racism in the Workplace. And obviously, with everything that's going on around today, there's still work to be done. But especially at that time, that was something a little bit new. So I'm curious, why did you feel compelled to, to give that talk? And, and how do you go about preparing for, for such a talk like that? Yes, well, I- Martin Luther King Foundation in Atlanta sponsored what they called their annual Salute to Greatness fundraising dinner every year. And they invite somebody from the corporate sector to give the keynote speech. At the time, I was on the Delta Airlines board, and so was the former mayor of Atlanta, Andy Young. Andy and I sat next to each other at the board meetings, and we had become good friends. And I believe he recommended me to the King family when they were looking for a keynote speaker. And I said, sure, I'll do it. And I went back to Cincinnati thinking, what am I going to say to this audience, which knew 10 times more than I did about the subject? It would be comprised of many famous African-American community leaders and celebrities from all over the country. Now, fortunately, P&G had hired Vernon Jordan as a consultant to guide the company during the affirmative action era. Vernon was a lawyer who had been a close friend and supporter of Dr. Martin Luther King, and he was sure to be present at the Atlanta dinner. So I decided to seek Vernon's advice, and he told me, I would told him at first that I wanted to talk about racism in the workplace and ask him, what do you think I should do to get ready for that? He said, talk to your people. So we gathered together a group. I think it was about 20 African-American PNG employees in a conference room in Cincinnati. And I told them that I wanted them to tell me what it's like to be a black employee in a predominantly white company. 
I told them P&G always tries to do the right thing, but we often struggle to understand the problems we're trying to fix. Now, racism in the workplace is one of those problems, but we need to understand a lot better. And I want you to open your hearts and minds and tell me what you've experienced here. I want the message I deliver in Atlanta to be informative for employees to the MLK Foundation and to the business community as a whole. Now, the responses from our employees were amazingly frank and quite helpful. And as we went around the table, each person said the same thing in their own way, backed up by their own personal experience within P&G. And the point they all emphasized was that they lived with at P&G was not overt. It was subtle, debilitating, and largely unrecognized. They described their feeling with the term, we live with a pain threshold, which was the added burden, the added burden of having one's opinion dis discounted or failing to receive credit or recognition, having to work to a different standard than one's peers, and seldom receiving the benefit of the doubt in close call situations. Those interviews became the heart of my talk, which was well received by the audience in Atlanta. The one comment I remember most was, quote, somebody finally gets it, end quote. Unfortunately, this type of problem requires cultural change as we see today, teaching children to respect and not look down upon others because of their race or origin. Any discrimination laws and policies alone won't do it. Yeah, and it, it's something that, it, you know, it's it certainly a lot of action has to, to be taken place. And, and some of that action starts with, with conversation. And I think what you speak to there is starting first by listening rather than just going to that talk and sharing, hey, what your perspective was, taking the time to, to listen to people, to hear their responses, and then be able to, to share that, I think, is the starting point for, for some of these things. And something impressive that you're doing even, even back then. And I know you've also given other talks as well outside of that one. You've also talked about how to be a winning manager, which you've been to, given at the Harvard Business School, among some other places. So any key takeaways from, from that that you think are still relevant to today? Definitely so. Now, the winning manager talk, as I recall, was a recruiting presentation aimed at graduate school, graduate school students, yes, at universities like Harvard and Wharton. Its underlying purpose was to explain the advantages, the advantages of working for a company where your boss would care about your development and not just your performance on the company's behalf. And P&G, everyone is responsible for developing the people under them. And that's because we're committed to promoting our future managers from within the company. So the takeaways from that presentation are undoubtedly still relevant today. And here are the ones I stressed, and there were three of those I'd like to mention. The first was to master the fundamentals of good communication. I said that if you're going to be a leader, you had to be able to move the organization emotionally as well as physically. To do that, you have to be a good communicator, and you have to acquire that skill both orally and in writing. In my case, my journalism school background was helpful to me. The second takeaway, take my advice to the students to think strategically about virtually everything because that's an acquired skill requiring practice. It is not something you just normally or naturally do. 
because there are so many aspects to strategic thinking. It's a process by which you make choices and understand what the options are in any given situation. And you got to learn how to do that by training yourself. And PNG, we highly valued individuals who had the ability to decide what to do about problem situations and not just how to do it. Number three is what I call developing social intelligence or the, the ability to deal with people in a way that is helpful to them as well as to you. You want people to succeed and you want people to want you to succeed. Social intelligence has several definitions, but I think the one that applies best to business leadership is that it's the ability to get along well with others and to obtain their trust and cooperation. I underscored that point in my talk by reminding the students that when you become a manager in business, if your people want you to fail, you will fail. If the people under you want you to succeed, you have a good chance of succeeding because they'll work to help you achieve the objectives you set for yourself and the ones you set for them and for the company. Now, there were other topics in that talk, but as I recall, these are the three most important points of advice. Yeah, which are some incredible points advice, you know, talking about communication. I, I think one of the most valuable trainings that I took at PNG, I remember being leadership on paper, fantastic course on communication, the written form, and then also inspirational presenter, which was kind of the the in-person or the the presentation form there. Great takeaway about, you know, I, I hadn't really thought about previously that strategic thinking is a skill. And so you can kind of practice it. So I love that. And then especially this idea of social intelligence. I haven't, I never really quite thought about this idea of like, yeah, if your people want you to succeed, you have a good chance of succeeding. If they don't like you because you don't have that social intelligence and they want you to fail, there's a good chance that you are going to fail. So building that social intelligence, I think three kind of incredible points and insights to, to share. And so as we start to wrap up, because this has been incredible, love the insights, the the stories, the history of PNG. But as we start to wrap up, we do want to do a little bit of a, a speed round, get to know you a little bit better. So a couple of just kind of quick questions. The first is, what's your favorite thing about Cincinnati? Springtime. I can honestly say that springtime in Cincinnati was, was just absolutely the greatest. It was the time when everything starts to sprout and blossom, kind of the ultimate renewal after that long gray winter. But a close second for me was Grader's ice cream. <laughs> that is a good answer. Yeah, to imagine thinking about the Cincinnati Reds opening day and getting a pint of Grader's ice cream to enjoy it. That's a that's a good combination of those two ideas or three three different things together in one. I like that. And what's your primary form of escape? Are you reading books, watching movies, watching TV? Well, all of the above. Watching, we've been in lockdown, lockdown just like everybody else during the pandemic. So. Watching movies, watching TV, and reading mostly on the internet has been a big part of our daily existence. It used to be gardening, golf, and the Reds and Bengals games. but Yeah, no, it's a little bit different. This has been, it's been a fantastic interview. And the last thing that we'd like to hear your thoughts on are, yeah, what those last words of wisdom that you might leave for the next generation of leaders. This is what I say is study the lessons from the past. Great leaders are also great historians. Think about that. Second, innovate. That's the surest way to grow a business. Third, work your tail off. In the process, master the fundamentals of good management. 
Excellent. Well, wonderful words of advice, Ed. Like I said, a fantastic interview. Love the the stories. Loved hearing a little bit more about the history. Love hearing the kind of the thought process about some of the the big components of not just PNG but general kind of leadership and life principles. So, Ed, thank you so much for joining us today. You're welcome, Drew. It's been a pleasure. And that's our show. Like what you've heard, please subscribe and rate us on your favorite podcasting platform. For show notes about this episode, links to things mentioned, or requests for sponsorship, visit pgalums.com slash podcast. Follow us on Twitter at pgalumpod. We'd love to hear from you. Learnings from Leaders is a production of the PNG Alumni Network, a global nonprofit founded by former PNGers committed to community, enrichment, and philanthropy. With more than 45,000 registered members worldwide, the network connects alums through global conferences, local chapters, industry events, and online content. Our nonprofit foundation supports economic empowerment in communities around the world. To find out more, visit pgalums.com. Now, here's a preview of next week's episode. Most things, the problems are because of politics. You have to be willing to sacrifice to be able to deal with it objectively and take politics out of the game. And that's an individual thing. And the best leaders take their own personal gains, i.e. politics, out of whatever they do. The best leaders will do what's right by their people and not what's right for them to get the next promotion. The next promotion will be because they did right by their people and right by the consumer. That's it for this week. I've been Andrew Tarvin. And I'm still Roman Segel. Thanks for joining Learnings from Leaders, the PNG Alumni Podcast. We'll see you next time.